0: Hey, Howard Jacobson here. Welcome to today's Plant Yourself podcast. A quick reminder, this podcast is free for everyone and supported by patrons. So if you would like to find out about becoming a patron of the show and helping us out, helping defray the cost, helping to spread the message, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. Thanks so much and enjoy today's episode. Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. I'm going to introduce today's episode with a couple of lines from Joan Baez. If living were a thing that money could buy, you know, the rich would live and the poor would die. So that's from All My Trials, 1960. And Today's guest, Jovita Lee, who is co-founder and vice president of Democracy Green, a North Carolina based nonprofit dedicated to environmental justice, is spending her life making sure that the poor can live as well as healthily and as long as the rich. And this isn't an issue of choosing bad foods, of eating McDonald's instead of, you know, fresh greens from Whole Foods. This isn't anything that anyone individually has agency over. This is about the environment. This is about the fact that poor people, people of color, indigenous peoples are living near toxic waste, near CAFOs, the factory farms, near waste disposal facilities, near super fund sites, all these things that would never get cited near an affluent neighborhood. And as a result. The life expectancy in these communities is 10 to 15 years shorter than the American average. The rates of cancers are up to 50 percent higher, twice the impact of various other health effects and The environmental movement has this long and actually kind of shameful history of privileging certain parts of the environment over others. And specifically, it's focused on preserving spaces enjoyed by the rich and adjacent to where the rich live. So greenways, national parks and all of these, you know, all of nature is worth preserving, yet when the city of Detroit has no clean water and people in, North, in rural North Carolina are getting sick because of the smell from the pig processing plants and the runoff in the water and the affluent in the air, then you know these environmental groups are, are falling down on the job. And so the result is a nation in which environmental racism condemns poor people, people of color, and people of color, regardless of their income and economic status, to lives cut short by chronic conditions which are caused and worsened by pollutants. Oh, and climate instability, because the climate crisis is a racist problem because it also affects poor people, people of color disproportionately. So we're shocked when we see video of police officers killing black people by kneeling on their necks by depriving them of breathable air. So we should be equally outraged at the fact that most poor communities of color are being systematically deprived of clean air. And yeah, it's not a nine minute video, but it's a chronic problem that has been continuing for a really long time and continues to this day. It's just not as visible. So in our conversation, uh, Ms. Lee and I talked about the intersection of environment, true democracy. Oh, and also we talked about ethical consumerism, which is to say, if you don't want a disgusting, polluting pig processing plant in your neighborhood, then where do you want it? And maybe if you want to be um, a proponent of environmental justice, you should reconsider your own consumption of pork, ham and bacon. We also spoke of the racist effects of climate change rising seas, stronger storms, affecting people who live in um, in areas that are more likely to be affected. And we talked about the war on black bodies that has never ended, the forms of slavery that persist to this day, and also the remarkably courageous and energetic work being done by activists and volunteers like Misley to bring about true justice and democracy. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Before we get there, too quick words. Uh, One is coach training. Yeah, that's two words. The next uh, cohort of Well Start Health Coach Training, the Coaching Academy begins October seventh. If you're interested, go to wellstartcoach.com. The program is filling up nicely. We're going to have a great cohort of people who want to become wicked effective at helping other people change health habits, health behaviors. And secondly, if you enjoy this podcast and you want to help support it financially, putting your dollars where your thoughts are um, very much appreciated. I was just watching a documentary about minimalism, and it began by talking about how pervasive advertising is in our society. And yes, this is an advertisement for this podcast. And the last one was an advertisement for the coach training that I do. But I don't advertise Squarespace or comfortable underwear or uh, MailChimp or mattresses or razors uh, or audible. Um, I don't want to pollute this podcast with advertising. I want this to be a place where it's just me and you guys. And to the extent that I have to pay the bills, I do share things that I do that you can buy, whether it's books, programs uh, or services. Um, But between either that or you making a contribution, a gift to the podcast to help keep it going are the only ways in which I choose to derive income from this effort. And it is quite an effort. It is a lot of work. So if you're interested and you'd like to help out, com slash gift, you can do a one time or become a monthly patron of the show. All right, that's it. Let's get to today's conversation. Without further ado, Jovita Lee, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, it's good. It's good to talk to a neighbor. I guess you're, you're in Durham, North Carolina. I am, yes. Um, so, if it wasn't a pandemic, we could be having this discussion in person. But, uh, Absolutely. <laughs> next best thing. So, um, let's, let's just start with, um, with who, who you are and what you do.
1: Right. So, my name is Shavita Lee. I am the founding vice president of Democracy Green, and it is a 501c3 organization here in North Carolina that focuses on environmental justice and disaster relief. And so a little bit about my work, I work within the 501C3 and C4 space. um, And a lot of our work focuses on um, environmental justice campaigns. So if we're talking about um, CAFO operations within North Carolina, which is uh, hog waste operations in eastern North Carolina. If we're talking about um, Gen X, which is chemicals that are found um, on our coast here in North Carolina, if we're talking about you know wildlife protections um, and the EPA protections that trickle down here or um, any protections around um, industrial farming um, and the fact that we have the largest um, industrial farm company, Smithfield Foods, here in North Carolina. Um, so any work surrounding that is definitely my field. Um, and then also we have the disaster relief arm which directly focuses on providing mutual aid and relief to communities following a climate disaster or any form of storm or anything that may come through North Carolina. And so we're able to provide assistance, relief, and mutual aid for specifically eastern North Carolina, but our reach is statewide.
0: Gotcha, thanks. So I'm real interested in the part where you said you're a co-founder because it's 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 easy for people to sort of like have a passion and find an organization where you can work that matches that passion but I like, like founders of things you're like you go out into the world and you're just like there's nothing here for me until I make it for myself so what's what's your what was your background that um that you know gave you these interests and um and that led you to create something that hadn't existed
1: absolutely so my background has always been in justice work. I have been an organizer for 10 years, um, and so I went to school uh, for international studies and business and public administrations to ensure that I had um, a diverse background, so that way I could have the standing um, to create my own, and so I do have a Democracy Green with my um, best friend and colleague. We uh work together to create and birth democracy green because we're in the same field and you know a lot of our work environmental justice work it's just something that is a part of us Um, it's nothing that we had to sign up for or study for because unfortunately the experience as a black woman in North Carolina the birthplace of the environmental justice movement it's incumbent upon you to go ahead and be in that work and if you are truly Cognizant of what's going on with your communities and with your people. It's a natural fit. And so a lot of times you'll see um, The environmental movement talked about as a whole, but the EJ piece is sometimes left out of larger organizations. Um, And so being able to create something that could fill that void Uh, As far as making sure that resources are actually getting to the most impacted communities, making sure that we are actually building relationships with community and not just using community for a good promo, then that is definitely, you know, was part of the motivation to create Democracy Green and to make sure that relief didn't, we didn't have to wait weeks and months uh, for support. We were able to get into the space pretty immediately um, if something were to happen and we were also um, prepared. Because again, we're, we're both North Carolina native. So storms, climate surges, everything that, you know, everyone goes through in the state, but specifically black and brown communities get the worst of it. It wasn't anything new. So we didn't have to think about it. We didn't have to study about it. We knew that these things needed to be prepared. And that was really the effort behind Democracy Green.
0: Mm. And you know, in preparation, you sent me some wonderful articles and videos about environmental justice. And a lot of it was historical. And I found myself, like, nodding along to, like, oh, what I thought the environmental movement was, which is, you know, Sierra Club, John Muir, um, Earth Day, and, you know, even, I, I lived in Durham for, for nine years, and, mm-hmm. you know, for me, environmentalism in Durham was the Eno River Festival, right, right. So so to preserve green spaces and it really never occurred to me <laughs> that yeah. environmentalism was also the parts of downtown that i avoided because i couldn't find a parking spa- space and i was a little scared of it and it was dirty and like who wants to you know i would go there when i had jury duty right like right. The, the crumbling urban infrastructure so can you talk a little bit about sort of the the history of environmentalism and how it has excluded racial and economic justice
1: Absolutely. So when we think of environmental justice, environmental racism, so environmental justice is the movement. It is the entire effort behind um, the injustice that we see. And then environmental racism speaks directly to that injustice as a concept within the movement. And so when we think of those terms, we realize that a lot of the policy, A lot of the practices from our local, state and federal level officials, it has been a deliberate attempt to make sure that more white or um, affluent communities were better protected than black and brown communities. So when you're thinking of proper infrastructure, when you're thinking of green space, those areas do not exist in eastern North Carolina at all. Um, And so it's not a coincidence that the same area in the state continuously and in other states, so it's not just North Carolina, continuously gets the brunt of the environmental racism and injustice. It's drawn that way. And I know that a lot of folks know that North Carolina is one of the main states that's been in ongoing battle about their redistricting practices and how maps are drawn. And so here in North Carolina, we've push for several different districts to be redrawn. And the reason for that, a lot of folks assume it's just education. Like we just want students to go to better schools. That's part of it. But a lot of the push of that is because you'll see districts that are strategically drawn to make sure that a Republican majority stays in. Then from that, you can see that black and brown communities are drawn to make sure that they go to the less resourced schools. Then on top of that, you'll see bad industry like Smithfield Foods or other um, industries come into the same communities and cause excess amounts of pollution. Then you'll see a part of um, layers as far as like chemicals and pesticides and where those um, are going to be sprayed or, or where that's going to be located. It's all in the same area. It's called layers. And we use GIS technology to identify those areas.
0: What's, what's GIS technology?
1: So that technology is um, a technology that we use to uh, create um, redistricting maps. So when we're talking about the districts within North Carolina, that's the technology uh, used and it stands for geographic information systems. And we use that technology to make sure or to check behind really our elected officials when they draw our maps here in the state. And so there's a lot of examples where you can see deliberate attempts. So, for example, a historically black college here in North Carolina, North Carolina A&T University. If you were to stand in the middle of their university in one street, one leg would be in one district. The other leg would be in another one. That's mm. deliberate because so, it's a historically black university. And mm-hmm. so one side of the campus votes one way. The other side of the campus votes the other way to benefit so, the Republican majority.
0: Right, so to dilute the, the power of a single block.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That's not the singular example. Um, there's other areas in North Carolina, and um, this is no longer existent. But at another historically Black um, university, North Carolina Central University, there was a time where the university was divided into four districts, and huh. so, well, within one dormitory would be in different districts. It's ridiculous. So, uh-huh. like, always been a deliberate effort in the state of North Carolina to make sure that the majority remained. Um, on the Republican side, and they could justify why they needed to put these industries, these um, less resource schools and all of these layers in these black and brown communities. And so when that has been done time and time again, you can't erase that historic impact. And so that's the injustice behind it. Even if we were to come out of this space in recent years, there would be a lot of cleanup to do. Because at this point, we've already created historical ties when it comes to cancer rates, hypertension, other health effects that have impacted the communities and impacted families. And unfortunately, folks have lost their lives to this. We can't erase that. We cannot, it's been too long. And so that is definitely where environmental racism and environmental injustice lies. And with North Carolina being the birthplace of environmental justice in 1982, uh, Warren County fighting back against um, an injustice in their county, that was really what served as the catalyst. For environmental justice nationally, because it was talked about in the 60s. It was not the first conversation in the 80s. But North Carolina really served as a location where folks started to pay attention and folks started to realize, okay, communities are pissed off. Like they're recognizing the work that's being done behind the scenes. They're recognizing the injustice and this is about to be, you mm-hmm. know, and it was.
0: Yeah. So I mean, I'm curious that, it really wasn't part of a national conversation for so long. It's something that you can stare at for your whole life and not see mm-hmm. the racial components, right? Because like pollution is bad, right? We, like right. And bad smells are bad, and bad chemicals that co- cause problems are bad. And but there's sort of a a cultural or a, 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 a assumption that well they have to go somewhere. We need these things. We need the the KFOS. We need the you know, the chemical processing plants, we need to create dioxin and PCBs and all this stuff. And well, given that, you know, I certainly don't want it in my neighborhood. So it's a a giant, you know, called the NIMBY, not in my backyard. Mm -hmm. And so these things all end up in the places where people don't have the power to fight them.
1: Absolutely. That's exactly where it ends up. It's a deliberate attempt. And so because the political power lies within affluent communities it has become just normal strategy for elected officials they know to place them these um industries in these communities they know that it's a part of the blueprint and so not having the political power and not having um the the time and and the space to push back as affluent communities probably can has served as the issue and so there's a whole lot of groundwork and a whole lot of community leaders and you know elders within the Eastern North Carolina community who fight every day for these injustices and they win and they get it done. And you know those are the folks that we learn from each and every day, but it shouldn't have to be a lifetime effort for these elders and for these leaders because it would be literally a week or month effort if we were talking about Chapel Hill, North Carolina or Wake County, or if we were talking about anywhere else. It would be about a week, a month, and we'd have one community meeting, one uh, meeting with our local officials, and it would probably be debunked, especially if the most affluent community members show up.
0: Right. Well, it's been 15 years since Katrina, right? If, you know, New Orleans Orleans is selectively rebuilt.
1: Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Then we're talking about Hurricane Sally that just went through the Gulf, Um, this morning, and there's already 550,000 U.S. uh, residents in that area without power. They're already showing the images of the damage. They're already showing the community cleanup. They just, we literally just got through East East and here we are with Hurricane Sally. And that's a part of the climate conversation as well. Like, these storms are not happenstance. They're not happening this fast, and they're not happening at this large scale just out of nowhere or on a whim. It's a reason for that. And that is definitely due to climate. And so we can get into that later, but like this is nothing of chance.
0: Right. See, when I think about the issue of environmental racism, it feels like an issue that conservatives could get behind, right? So there's, and when we talk about racism and systemic racism and institutionalized racism, one of the points of view of a lot of white folks, and I think some people in the black community as well, is that it's a matter of culture, of uh, bootstrapping, like anyone can make it in America. And, you know, I think that's certainly debatable. But when when, when you look at you know, the premise there is everyone can get the same start, right? And then if two, gr- if two groups are disproportionately represented in terms of variable outcomes, well, maybe we need to look at the culture of the group and help them with that, you know, pull your pants up, stuff like that. But when you're talking about kids with lead poisoning or kids with asthma from the age of 18 months and, you're ta- you know, you're talking about can't breathe the air, um it seems like let's a no like nobody can defend that. And yet it has been among the most defended of public policies that we have. Like where's the disconnect? What am I missing about why why this still exists? Right.
1: And so I think let's the best way to describe this is to back it up a little bit. And so When we think of environmental racism and environmental injustice and how it strategically impacts black and brown communities, we have to back it all the way up to our history as a nation. And so when we um, emancipated slavery, all that happened was that the birth of mass incarceration came about. So slavery never actually ended and constitutionally it never actually ended. It just changed face. And so then we have, and still have, the era of mass incarceration. And so folks that, Black and brown folks who have not fallen victim to the system as far as being incarcerated, it's a deliberate attempt to think of new ways to oppress people, because the freedom of Black and brown individuals in America is not something that's desired. And, you know, we can individually support that. We can individually say, you know, Black Lives Matter or I support these movements. But as elected officials, as a system, that's not the desire. The system is designed exactly how it was intended. And so the folks that are oppressed, it was intentional. And so when we think about the history of America and how we have not gotten but so far, as black and brown people, environmental racism is just another method to oppress the same communities. So as easy as it may seem to say, you know, clean air is a right for everyone and we can't understand why it's being um, withheld for certain, from uh, certain communities, it's a no brainer for black and brown individuals because it's just another head on the same beast. It's another way to oppress black and brown communities. And so it's not going to stop. They don't want it to stop. We'll stop eventually, but as far as the system and who's in charge right now, they don't want it to stop because it works to their benefit. They're able to get the funding. They're able to get the infrastructure. They're able to get the green space. They're able to keep their community exactly how they want to keep it. But we don't get those options because we we have not historically been seen as equal so in a lot of folks minds we can again like how can you defend a kid having asthma from infancy you know and you would think that you know this is a public health issue this isn't a race issue but unfortunately in this country it's always a race issue it is every conversation can be a race issue and that's the climate that we live in and so because the same beast has just changed names and changed faces this is just another version of how to keep black and brown folks at a certain level that's comfortable for affluent communities and comfortable for elected officials who do not share the same mindset as others.
0: Mm. See, and I, and I, you know, from my perspective, we, I've seen this in the past couple of, you know, years and certainly the last couple of weeks with what happens when you see uh, free black bodies, like the, you know, Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion put out a video, what WAP, Mm -hmm. like the, you know, the right wing is going apeshit over black bodies expressing themselves or Kaepernick or LeBron James, right? Like certain, certain forms of black expression are, Mm -hmm. are like, Oh no, I can't, I can't that's too much of a threat. Right. Um, well, and so you sent me a, um, it was actually really depressing. It was like the EPA.gov timeline of, of environmental justice. And it's clear yes. that whoever wrote that wrote it as kind of a celebration of progress. Yes. Right? Indeed. Like it was very, you know, like I could imagine, you know, the, the, the music swelling over it. We did this and we did this and we did this. And if it were simply a matter of, you know, well, shit flows downhill and so, right. economically, like it's it's sort of accidental that Flint, Michigan has a has a lead crisis, and that poor you know, rural communities in North Carolina have a pig shit crisis. If it was just sort of well, that's just where it got put because that's where poor people live, then the EPA, all the things they were doing, would have made a lot of sense. Like, okay, let's do some grants, and let's do some neighborhood work, and let's do some remediation, and let's hire some lawyers. But right. when you say like this is a deliberate attempt, it's another form of slavery of Jim Crow, then all of that stuff just seems so inadequate.
1: Yes, it is inadequate. It was absolutely written with the tone of celebration, as if the federal government or this country, whether we're talking state or local, has done enough. And so now it's pretty much time for those communities to save themselves. That's the exact tone that that timeline was written in. And, you know, it's just extremely unfortunate because these conversations can date back to the late 1800s. And so the fact that the birth of the environmental justice movement was not until 1982 should tell you something. Mm -hmm. Why there's so many years between us identifying the climate crisis, us being able to identify how it's going to impact uh, certain communities over others. But it took until the eighties for black and Brown individuals per usual to be able to effectively communicate what is going on in their communities and advocate on behalf of themselves and actually have a national stage listening, Mm -hmm. not have taken that long, because the conversation did not start with that County. It started way back when. And so the fact that it's often ignored or passed off as, um, A myth or something that is non-existent or because there's this huge value on profit over people in this country, like as long as pockets are being lined, the moral impact doesn't really matter. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So it is unfortunate. It is deliberate. It is disrespectful, but it is not a surprise. And so that's why it's just like, you know, when you hear about other folks talk about the environmental movement, EJ just entered the conversation not too long ago because white folks did not want to talk about it. They wanted to talk about the positive side of things, like what they could build for their communities. They didn't want to talk about what was actually happening right next door in black and brown communities. That wasn't a part of the conversation.
0: Well, it it seems like, you know, and I I also read you sent me uh, an article by Jedediah Purdy about the history that I just found fascinating around, it seems like EJ is not a moneymaker, right? No. EJ costs money, whereas like the mainstream environmental movement turned into an industry. It did. Right? There's a lot of white people made a lot of money being good environmentalists.
1: Yes, pretty much. Like That, it, that is the nail on the head. Like, it has become a paycheck uh, in the environmental movement as a whole. And so what happens is, especially now, Um, Because EJ is now uh, a cool term for folks to use and want to have interest in. So now what's happening is they're using black and brown bodies, black and brown stories, black and brown experiences, putting it into their messaging, and then selling it out from their large platforms as if this is work they've been doing for umpteen decades, and it's not. It's a very new conversation for them. And, you know, the EJ conversation needs to happen, so we're not saying that but the exploitation behind it is historical. We've always been exploited as black and brown people. And so it's become this almost mockery of the experience of black and brown communities in North Carolina, but nationwide and globally. Like it's almost become a mockery because there was no interest in the conversation before, but now funding has an interest in the conversation. And so now there's a, a push to pivot messaging and a push to pivot work being done um, in black and brown communities for more affluent um, organizations because that's where the money is now. People, there are funders who want to fund into the efforts because it looks good because we are in an era where there is an uprising. There's a racial uprising going on that we cannot ignore and it impacts everything. Black and brown bodies are falling at the hands of police right now. And it's not something new. It's not something that just happened this year. It is just these movements are coming to a head in 2020. When you're talking about a global pandemic, then you're talking about racism and brutality within this country. Then you tack on all of the injustices, environmental or otherwise, that have been happening for decades and centuries. It is a lot going on for Black and brown communities this year, but period. And so because it's such a hot button topic, everyone wants to feed into it but that's not always helpful. Um, It can often be harmful because you're taking voice and taking um, the mic from the folks who need the mic because they're the ones living this and experiencing this every day. And so yes, there has been a a paycheck mentality um, with environmentalism uh, for a long time and now uh, realizing that they have to pivot it's now become an exploitation situation.
0: Right. So, you know, P- Purdy wrote about um, like legal liberalism, where the Ford Foundation really set the face of the environmental movement in what, you know, you might say was some well-meaning ideas about let's litigate, right? Let's have environmental mm-hmm. law. And what that did was it, it it put it all in the hands of experts, in elites, people who could afford to go to law school and do this pro bono because they were working for big corporations right. or who were willing to... You know, make $30,000 a year instead of $400,000 a year, instead of having the movement come from the people in the communities who were not savvy, who were not, you know, legal scholars, but, uh, but ultimately could represent their own interests, and I think became very savvy about dealing with the law. But it's just that the, all, all of the oxygen went to the elites.
1: Absolutely, um, and that's that's something that is absolutely normal. And what oftentimes folks forget is that all that's happening is things are being renamed. So, for example, there's a lot of community work that happens um, in the state of Mississippi, and so there's an example of an affluent organization going to that area and trying to teach out skills surrounding GIS. But what's unfortunate is Mississippi and black and brown leaders in that area are largely responsible for that technology and those methods. So all that's happening is things are being renamed and they're being presented back to the communities that invented it. And so, and then they're selling it as a new idea Mm -hmm. and as, Oh, look what we came up with. No, this is what you stole renamed and now you're giving it back to the community in a way where they can barely identify what this is anymore because it's been broken down and shifted into something that affluent uh, leaders are comfortable with and so then here we are and so when we talk about you know communities being able to speak for themselves absolutely they've always been able to speak for themselves they're the ones moving the movement forward they're the ones doing the groundwork they're the ones in the trenches daily getting the work done they're the leaders of this and so they have the knowledge they have the expertise they are the experts on this. The problem is they don't get the mic they don't get the funding that's literally the only difference and exactly what she said like they are missing the the spotlight that they deserve and that they worked for. it goes to folks who have the titles or have the appropriate background and with degrees and with experience and folks that are able to do this work for free but The thing about it is most black and brown elders and community leaders are doing the work for free. So that's also an assumption. They're not getting paid for this. They're just trying to defend their livelihoods. So it's different. That's something that someone can do for a job. And when they get tired of it, they can put it to the side and it won't impact them anymore. That's not a choice black and brown communities get to make.
0: Right. I mean, the, the word that keeps coming up for me is humility. So that, you know, if there are environmental groups and environmental lawyers and experts who really want to help, I think, you know, to come to a community and say, how can we serve you? Yes. You know, you, you lead, you tell us what you need and we'll provide it if we can, as opposed to here, this is the, this is the playbook.
1: Right. Right. There has been a lot, I mean, a lot of helicopter energy, especially here in North Carolina Mm -hmm. where large organizations will come together Um, they'll come into the areas they'll helicopter in they'll tell you the plan for your area where you've resided all of your life and tell you what needs to happen what's going to work what's not going to work and if you don't do it our way the funding will be stripped it's literally coming in threatening for communities to follow their blueprint because their blueprint is the only blueprint that's going to work which is a complete myth and so when you put funding and you place a burden of having to force community and community leaders to follow your lead in order to get the resources they need, that is terrible. And that has nothing to do with justice or the movement. That is a deliberate attempt to like, keep control over these black and brown individuals, which is the nature of this country. We, we don't know anything else. Like, We really truly don't know anything outside of controlling black and brown bodies. And again, as I said earlier, this is just another way to do it. And so that's exactly what's been happening, not just in the state, but nationally, but definitely here in North Carolina.
0: So I want to ask a, a semi-personal question. So I'm really curious about it is when you set up Democracy Green, how did you get funding? Where did you, where did you look and how, <laughs> what, what was the pitch?
1: Yeah, so a lot of grant applications. Uh, I'll say that. So definitely being fortunate enough to where my partner and I and her family, um, being just well-known community leaders uh, within her family, they already owned and operated a 501c3 for music education. So it was not a new path, um, which was wonderful and fortunate for us. And so having experience in that, and both of us having experience in um, grant proposals and applications, we were able to know exactly what to say and how to frame our work in a way where they can understand and they realize that we are an important piece within the community because that's really what it's all about. Like they, you know, when you write these applications, it's, it's so long and it's so much information you have to provide, but luckily we both had the expertise to do so. And so we were able to gain funding um, to be able to, you know, to be able to birth this. And because we have the track record of the work and because we're North Carolina natives, with all due respect, you can't tell me anything about my state. So that has been a big, big um, portion of how we're able to move because the relationships aren't fake. We know these communities, our roots are in these communities, our families are in these communities. It wasn't just, oh, we were able to provide relief for our black and brown communities, we didn't know. We were providing relief to aunts to uncles, to family, literal family members. And so on being able to have that connection in real roots and real relationship with North Carolina specifically black and brown leaders and communities, that was what really made the difference when it came to funding and when it came to credibility. Because there's a lot of times, you know, black leaders have to be used as the relationship for other organizations that may not actually have the deep roots in community. And so that was the missing piece, like, and we were able to feel that. We actually were an organization that actually works with community leaders. We have a strong and trusting relationship. We've never done the community wrong. We have always entered the space correctly. Like just having a good track record also helps with the funding because not only do you speak for yourself, the community will speak on your behalf as well because they know that if funding and support gets in the hands of us, they're going to see it. Mm -hmm. Having that combined expertise, but then also having the trust of the community has definitely gotten us far.
0: And has the, have you ever felt like you had to compromise because of funding sources that weren't 100% behind you or?
1: No, well, not personally. Um, We won't. And it's just what it is. We have literally paid light bills and provided other mutual aid out of our accounts. We'll do that before we sell out. And that's unique because there are unfortunately groups that will have to be forced into space where they do have to accept deals that they may not want. And there's been even more situations where organizations have accepted money and returned it because of that reason, because we can't be bought. You're not going to force us into a space where we have to do what you say, like we're fortunate to be in a position where we don't have to do that. Like we're not going to sell out for you and we're not going to sell out our community for your benefit. Our community comes first and they know that. And so because we've stayed true to that, you know, it can be trying at times like we, you know, there may be good opportunities financially that come through, but if it's not good morally, then it actually contradicts the entire work that we're trying to do. And so we don't want that image, but most of all, we're just not willing to do that as North Carolinians, as natives, like we know what goes on in our state, we know what our people are up against and we won't create a new burden of not being able to trust us on top of what they already deal with every day.
0: Gotcha. So so notice that a lot of my listeners may not be familiar with the topic. Let's kind of dive into um, like real fundamentals. Like what are the health disparities um like what what are you what are you seeing in your communities compared to national averages i saw in one of the videos um and by the by the way you sent me two videos one of them was uh, an al jazeera report that was like very specifically explicit about racial injustice and i don't know if you noticed this but it had like two and a half thousand likes and five and a half thousand dislikes (laughs) And, and i think that one said like a uh, a black man or a, a black person who makes fifty to sixty thousand dollars a year lives in a neighborhood with worse environmental quality than a white person making ten thousand dollars a year. Yes. Um, so, what, what do you say? I mean, you know, health is multifactorial, very complex. But what what does the best data say about the effects of environment on health, on morbidity and mortality in black and brown communities um, compare, compared to um, white communities?
1: Right, so areas that live um, near industry, polluting industry, especially black and brown communities, which is where they're located, have almost twice as many adverse health impacts as a white community. And so when we break that down, that is a rate of about 50% when it comes to cancer. And so we know once, let's say your grandmother was living in a community with uh, heavy pollution and she passed from lung cancer. That is now something that is steeped in the DNA of that family. And so now not only is the rest of the family at risk if they don't move, they're at risk anyway because now that has entered the bloodline. And so when we're talking about hypertension and when we're talking about asthma first and foremost, that is one of the biggest health disparities that we see in black and brown communities because they're constantly breathing in pollution at all times. There's not a time where they're not, breathe, uh, not breathing in those pesticides or harmful chemicals. That is an everyday routine. I mean, right in Duplin County, North Carolina, you can walk outside and hog waste mist will touch your skin. That, and that's daily. And that's coming from the KFO operations down there. And so when you're thinking about health, I mean, imagine living every day and having hog waste on your skin. I mean, it's just immediate impact. That's something that a lot of communities don't even have to imagine because it wouldn't happen. And so, of course, the rate of asthma is extremely high. Of course, the rate of cancer is extremely high. Of course, the rate of hypertension is extremely high. And it's because of the breakdown of the chemicals that are being used in these operations. When you're looking at what is actually in the pesticides and what... um, the actual impacts and how long the impacts will last 20, 30, 40 years. Like when you put all of that together and you have more than one industry in one area, it is pretty inevitable that your health is going to deteriorate at a much faster rate than any other community. And so life expectancy decreases exponentially. So the average life expectancy in those areas is about 60 at 60 to 65. But then if you were to look at affluent communities, upwards of 77 to 85. So like the life expectancy decreases just because of living near industry for so long. When you're living near coal plants, like breathing that in every day. And so the coal also has to get there. So not only are you breathing in the the coal that is being um, used within the plant, but then you also have the coal trains that's passing it by. If there's coal ash spills or anything like that, that's going to be in your water because there's so, there's so many examples of contaminated water here in North Carolina that is also causing the same health effects. So when you don't have clean water, you don't have clean air, what are you going to do? Those are the two main essentials for basic life. So you are constantly breathing in or ingesting or digesting chemicals at all times. At all times, so of course your rates are going to be about twice as high as the national average when it comes to um, cancer, hypertension, and asthma, which are the main three that we look at uh, most of the time.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm imagining that the um, uh, the em- the employees at the at the plants are also me- community members. So so it must be it must be very complicated. Like like I'm thinking about the CAFOs, which I, I guess yes. contained animal farming operations. Yes, uh, absolutely, so, exactly right. right. Yes. So, right. So, so my podcast is largely from a plant based view. So, a lot of my listeners are, you know, vegan or plant based mm-hmm. and are against animal cruelty. And they'll, they'll, right. be, they'll have been hearing other things in this conversation around, you know, you know, so there's cruelty to the animals, there's cruelty to the people in the community who have to live with the mist on their, on their skin. There's cruelty to the people who have to work there mm-hmm. who also may come home and say, look, we don't, we, if we make too much of a noise, they're going to move the plant somewhere else and we're all going to be out of a job. It just, it seems like, like such a catch 22.
1: Absolutely. And so the unfortunate side of this, uh, this is where um, the myth of economic development comes in because a lot of times two things will happen. One, these industries will create a myth or a facade that they are a small industry. So they will hide behind the, the narrative of the small farmer. And so when they get that narrative and they're able to run with it in media, in meetings, they're invited by elected officials to come and speak to the community. All they're talking about is you know, jobs, jobs, jobs. We want jobs. Like We're not saying that folks should be unemployed. That is not the message at all. When they're coming in and they're hiding behind small farms, saying that you know removing them from the area would be removing your local farmer, it's a lie. Mm-hmm. It's an absolute lie. Smithfield is nothing of a small farm. And that is the myth that and the narrative that they have been running with for umpteen years is that they are, have always been able to catch on to that narrative. Like if you get rid of us and you're getting rid of so many livelihoods and what's been passed down from generation and land ownership, they, they get into that whole conversation to be able to make themselves look good. And so that's a myth that has to be constantly debunked. But then the other side of it is yes, the economic development But you have to realize that if there's a development that is going to, that is a pretty much 100% guarantee that it's going to decrease your life expectancy, increase your risk of health disparities, that's not the kind of development you want. And so a lot of times people only hear one side of the conversation. Well, it's not, we don't want development, you know, get out of here and we don't want any jobs to come into the area. We want jobs to come into the area, clean ones, just like the ones that can go into affluent communities. We are well aware of the clean jobs that exist and can exist in these black and brown communities. They just don't want to bring them there because North Carolina is what second in solar? Like those jobs could be brought to these same communities, but they're not. You can't find them anywhere there. So this justification that only poor industry is the only economic development that these communities deserve, is absolutely absurd. And so that's where the breakdown comes, is that if we don't get this development, then we're not going to get any other development. That shouldn't be the case. That should absolutely not be the case. We should be presenting things and having proposals on the table for clean jobs that will not deteriorate folks' health at an alarming rate, and we don't have to deal with the impacts or the um, pollution that these industries cause. That should not be the give and take. It's not... Either you have a job or and you, you know, die early or you contract um, some sort of disease, or nothing. Like that should not be the give and take. Like there should be an option set in place where we can have great economic development, we can have clean jobs, we can have a productive economy within that area and not have to risk our literal health and bodies and livelihood in order to do so.
0: Well, I mean, it seems like one one of the tenets of the form of capitalism that we have now, as you mentioned, is, you know, profits over people, which means that the, the assumption is that no one's questioning, I think you probably are, but in mainstream, no one's questioning, well, we need Smithfield Farm. We need giant KFOs and, and hog processing plants. We need coal, you know, um, we need coal energy. And, you know, I would argue that, if we shouldn't if it shouldn't be in my backyard, it probably shouldn't be in anyone's backyard. Like maybe we Absolutely. need a different we need a different system that asks yes. the question, should KFOs even exist?
1: Yes, yes. That is a big question that we have is just, you know, because you know, a lot of our community leaders, they just raised this actually at a meeting yesterday, is the fact that, you know, every meal that you eat with pork or every water bottle that you buy. Um, you are contributing to what's going on in that area because you're keeping those industries in business. And so we do need to get in the conversation of how can we have a clean and just economy moving forward when we're talking about our energy sources, when we're talking about our healthy food choices and all of those things, because the problem is in the disconnect, you know, when folks are like, you know, we don't need, to, you know, eat pork and, you know, eat any kind of meat, you know, we we get into the conversation of like clean eating is better for your health and it's better for the environment, which is absolutely true. But the problem with that is there is nothing available in these communities. So we have to get there too. Because, you know, when we talk about the term food deserts, which means that there is no grocery store within reach for these communities, the most that they'll likely have is a corner store or a gas station. So healthy food choices are not gonna be there. And so their closest um, grocery store where they can get produce is probably gonna be five plus miles away. Now, when you're talking about an area that already has an issue with um, transportation, how do you expect folks to get five plus miles away for the nearest grocery store? Here in Durham, there's one on every corner. I wonder why. So that, that's a part of the conversation that is often skipped as well. Like we need to not only have our clean energy sources, we need to also be putting grocery stores and resources in these communities so they can have the same access as everyone else. And then I think a natural flow and a natural swap will happen. The problem is no one wants to do that. The community wants to do it and has done it for decades. And there are certain individuals that may want to do it, but as a system in this country, no they don't want to actually invest in community and invest in healthy eating choices and actually provide the education and the materials needed to make sure that the community is well aware of the benefits and they have the funding to keep it going. They don't want to do that. Yeah, It's a problem.
0: Sorry. Yeah. This is, it's, I mean, everything is so interconnected. And like when I think of the word environment, like generally it means like, Oh, what's around me. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about environmental justice, we're also talking about bullets we're also yes. talking. We're also talking about bodegas and gas stations instead of grocery stores with produce. Right. We're talking about you know. But I think the environmental movement has 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 thought about the environment in terms of the bad stuff that isn't there. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Like. And but if you just remove you know so if we take the KFO out if we remove Smithfield Farm you still have these food apartheid areas mm-hmm. you still have um, you know, d- discriminatory law enforcement, you know, you could argue, well, when you just remove one pillar, it actually gets worse.
1: Yes, yes. It's multifaceted. So that's why a lot of the times when folks want to have the justice conversation, they only want to talk about one piece. It's, it's really not an option for black and brown individuals. Like everything is intertwined. We have to talk about environmental justice just as much as we talk about social justice, just as much as we talk about racial justice. Like we don't get to choose. <laughs> because it's always simultaneous in our lives. And so that's been the biggest push when we're talking about the other side that wants to have these conversations that's great, but you don't get to pick and choose what you're comfortable with. You have to talk about it all because it impacts us all at the same rate. So the same way that we're talking about you know, us dying at the hands of police is the same way we need to talk about food deserts and not having healthy food choices in black and brown communities is the same way that we need to talk about the policies that are set in place to deliberately keep us oppressed. Like there's one conversation, we can't separate it out because it's impacting the same communities. We're not talking about new people. When we talk about a different facet of justice, we're talking about the same people. And so the, uh, the conversation has to remain um, intertwined. And just like you said, like we, we can't separate it out.
0: Right. and and when you know just when i think about it, like the human brain and how it works and how we you know attribute salience to certain pro- problems like a 10 minute video of george floyd is no different than a 50 year period of not being able to breathe because of the air quality right but 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 you're you know you don't have the same visuals right it's not as, right. it's not as shocking because it's it's chronic and it's accepted um, but it's the yeah. same issue.
1: Yes, yes. Like, these issues are intertwined. And so it's all rooted in racism. That That's the way to connect it. And we have to be honest and transparent about that. It's rooted in racism. And I think the discomfort around that term, and folks not wanting to use it because they live their lives a certain way and they've made a conscious effort to be inclusive, They think, some folks think that's a direct attack on them. Like, we're saying... Mm-hmm that, you know, every person is terrible, and that's not the message at all. What we're saying is racism is a part of the thread of this country. It is nothing new, and it's something that has to be talked about and has to be changed and rectified. It is steeped in our systems, in our policies, in our culture, in the way that we think and operate, where funding goes. Like, nothing we talk about is separate from it. And so when we have folks that want to have the conversation about pull yourselves up by the boot, by your bootstraps, we have example, Tulsa, Oklahoma, when we try to build ourselves up and we create successful economies and successful communities for ourselves, we're bombed. Because that's not actually what they want. And it's just a clever way to say, I worked hard. You should too. Mm-hmm. Who told you black and Brown people don't work hard. No one has ever, there's no research on that. We have always had to work twice as hard to get half of what everyone else has. And when we do get that half, we're bombed or we're killed or we're called out or a new industry moves in or anything. Because the point is for us not to get ahead. That is the actual game that we are unfortunately playing with our American system. The actual point is for black and brown individuals to not get ahead. That's the end game. And so anytime that we are making strides and we have wins and we're successful in our work. That's something that's against the operation of the system. And so that's why, yes, we have to talk about it as a whole. We have to just get real about racism and see that it's steeped in every conversation that we bring up. It's not separate. It may be uncomfortable for some, but it's nature for us. It's our lives. So imagine how we feel having to deal with it every day. We don't get to talk about it. We have to deal with it. We have to live with it.
0: All right. And, you know, from, from my perspective, from, from the white community, there's the same sort of whitewashing going on as there is around, um, you know, Smithfield being the small farmer. When, when, yep. when I look and I see very prominent, very successful, very wealthy black individuals. Right. So I see Oprah right. and Damon Johns and, and athletes. And then I say, well, you know, obviously anyone can get ahead. So, so there must be another explanation than race,
1: <laughs> right. right, And that's, that's a lot of folks' um, misconception is that, you know, within the 1%, like there are Black individuals, but there's not too many. So that's one thing. And two, there's always going to be outliers to any equation. There's always going to be outliers, and they are just simply outliers. And they were able to have things awarded to them, but that still didn't separate them from the systemic racism. It doesn't separate them because even at the 1%, they still face discrimination. Their livelihood may have changed financially, but they're still Black. You don't get wealthy and then all of a sudden your race drops. That's not how this works. And so a lot of times, you know, we look at that and we're like, oh, well, see, that's the perfect example of how you start from nothing and get to something there is no system set in place for that to be continual is the problem like we would all love to be Oprah's and you know be able to just not have financial worries but that's not the case because there's no system in place for us to get there that is happenstance situations if the system was set in place for us to be able to succeed equally to everyone else then we wouldn't even be having this conversation that we're having this morning but we don't have that available And so we often discredit folks who are not able to reach that plateau, which most people in general are not able to reach that level. We discredit black and brown individuals who can't get there as if it's a fault of their own. It's not, the systems are created to keep them right where they are. And so using, you know, those folks as an example of how you get out, that's not realistic. That's not realistic at all when you're talking about statistically and the amount of black and brown individuals in America and the expectancy of all of them to reach that plateau, that's just not going to work. And that's that's not a valid argument at all, because it's just so many things that happen to black and brown individuals. And there are so many systemic impacts that happen and are you know, incumbent upon black and brown individuals that even though, like I said, they may be in a different place financially, but they are not separate from racism. That they are not going to be seen really any different because if it we're late enough at night and dark enough at night and they were driving down the road, they would just be a black man or a black woman. We're talking about Oprah or Tyler Perry or any other um, affluent black um, individual. Like they would just be another black man or black woman. They still have those worries about the rest of their family and their colleagues and their friends who have to go home at night and they may make it, they may not. That's everyone's worry. And that's the difference. Like you can't, you can't take the racism away.
0: Well, I, I think you know, for me, like one of the big problems for people seeing the problem, whether it's the difference in health disparities or wealth gaps, or even you want, we wanted to talk about climate change, is that it's not that it's not binary. It's not like it either is or it isn't. We're talking about right shifted normal distributions. Like, yeah, there's outliers. And but when we look at the bell curves, right, we can see that racism exists across the board. It's hard. It's a hard thing for for human brains to do is to deal with these with these distributions. And also, like every time there's a storm, you know, somebody says, well, you know, we've had storms before. They were worse than this. And you need to look statistically. Yes. To, to see the truth. And I think it's really it's really hard for people to look statistically and especially when this, the, the truth that arises from the statistics is extremely inconvenient.
1: Right. Exactly. The inconvenient truth. And so a lot of times, like a great example used in the storms um, and a lot of folks, you know, like, oh, well, you know, we've had hurricane season forever. Like, that's just a part of nature. That's what happens, you know. And, you know, they try to excuse what happens in eastern North Carolina every time a hurricane hits. So here's the problem. There's lack of infrastructure, there's lack of resource and funding, there aren't protections set in place like in other areas of the state, so when a storm hits here my power may be out for a while, but generally speaking I'm not inconvenienced. Like it may suck like I, I can't go out and drive or, you know, if COVID didn't exist right now, like I couldn't go out and shop. I had to wait a couple of days and then I could go back out with my friends and my family and get back to normal life because my house is going to be intact.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Pretty much a guarantee. But when you build black and brown communities in floodplains and then have the nerve to ask why are they flooding out, why are their homes destroyed, when the majority of their homes in that area are trailers or they're not built to defend themselves against these category four and five storms that come every two years. I mean, that's just a disrespectful question to even ask, because these towns are built that way for a reason. They know black and brown folks live there. So they're going to build um, areas and they're going to place trailer parks in flood floodplains. And then if a storm hits, of course, they're going to flood out. Of course, their homes are going to be destroyed because they weren't built to be defense uh, defensive against the storm anyway. It was already inevitable. And then infrastructure was not there to protect against excess flooding. So all of the impacts of storm surges and, and um, these large 500 year storms that come every two years, they don't have the protections that we have here. Like knowing that a hurricane is coming in Eastern North Carolina is a community fright, honestly, because we, we already know the damage that's coming. It's not going to be a surprise to us, but it's going to be something that a lot of folks aren't going to be able to recover from because they're still trying to recover from the storm that happened two years ago. And they're still trying to recover from the storm that happened two years ago. And it's a broken record. We shouldn't be having 500 or 1,000-year storms every two years in the same area of the state. Mm -hmm. Not a coincidence. That's not how climate works. It's Mm -hmm. impacting communities because of the lack of infrastructure and resources that are given to that community to be prepared for that. They pick and choose what communities will be resilient and which ones won't.
0: Yeah, I mean, when you, you, know, you started this conversation by saying that slavery never ended, and what i what I just come to from that description is that Black and brown bodies, like trees, like hogs, are seen as extractable resources as opposed to living yeah. subjects. And you know, like the economics of um, building trailer parks in floodplains, and and with these you know ever increasing storms, like that's good business for somebody, mm-hmm. right? I'm, sh- mm-hmm. I'm sure there's I'm sure there's you know trailer park manufacturers and and lenders, you know, are doing much better, like like extracting as much wealth as they can from the far like clear cutting yeah. black and brown communities.
1: Yeah, like it is. It is extremely unfortunate that in 2020, we are still seen as a commodity rather than humans. Um, But that's just where we are. And we try our best not to dwell in it and we try our best to win from it. But that's just the reality of where we are. Like we have never been seen as equivalent. You can't go from seeing someone as three-fifths a person to then seeing them as whole later on. Like it's just been steeped into our DNA as a country that black and brown folks are less than, black and brown folks don't deserve to be here, black and brown folks this, black and brown folks that. Like that myth has been steeped into the thought, into the DNA of this country. And so to separate from that is has been proven difficult. Um because they folks benefit from our demise. That's just the way to put it. Folks literally financially. Folks, emotionally, mentally, just any way that you can think of benefit from our demise. And they're accustomed to things being dumped upon us. So as long as they don't have to worry about it or face it, we must be doing good as a country. It must be all right. But it's not. It has never been all right. And it's going to take a long time for us to get there. Because you can't steal a location off the backs of natives and off the backs of black um, indigenous folks here and then expect it to run properly after you have literally only had this country based on theft. Like you can't start a country that way. You can't start something, a system that way and think at some point it's going to change into some inclusive policy or inclusive system. That's something that's going to have to be fought because Mm -hmm. again, the literal inception of this country was built off of theft.
0: Yeah. So um, I want to end like with positivity. <laughs> so I want to ask you about Democracy Green and the work you're doing, but I want to frame it in terms of like something I'm confused about, which is like you talk about the, you know, you and the community who are embedded and are suffering from the thing, you know, like it's, you have to drive the movement. And at the same time, it seems like the biggest impediment is clueless white people <laughs> who are, so how do you square that? How do you, right? Cause you're, you know, you're um, advocating for things from from your own position. You're not mm-hmm. in this conversation. You know you're not a politician. You're not right. playing. You're not playing nice. You're not sugarcoating what's going on. You're not trying to make. You know, there's no there's no way in which you have tried to make my white listeners feel comfortable. <laughs> uh, how do you square those two the, with with the the work that you have in front of you and the need? for like, you know, I guess it's my my work, right? <laughs> it's to talk to my people.
1: Right, right. And so the way that we are able to square that is simply storytelling and telling the truth. And honestly, you have to do with that what you will, um, because it's not a responsibility of black and brown individuals to teach anyone anything, because it's very ironic to have to teach discrimination and racism, which are concepts created not by us. So that's definitely a burden that, um, we make well aware to um, you know white folks that that's not our burden to bear. If you are lacking education in that, like conversations, of course. But as far as not doing any of the work or any of the research, that's not our responsibility. So we start with that, and then you know we're we're able to just explain like, hey, this is our community. We are protective of this community, the leaders and the elders who live there are protective of the community and rightfully so. And so any and everybody can't just come in and infiltrate and cause harm. We we do our best not to allow that because that's not gonna move the movement anywhere. And so having those protections set in place to make sure that community folks are safe. But yeah, like doing the work, like being educated and taking that education back to your communities and saying, hey, like, this is what's going on right in our backyards, right in the east. Like, this is what's happening, you know, and just coming up with ways to support in a way that's not harmful. That's really, that's really the ask. Like, we're not saying that we don't need any help, any support. Like, don't even think of us. Like, we want you to think of us. We want, you know, folks to advocate, you know, for justice and for fairness. We definitely want that. But it has to be done in a way that's not going to be harmful to the community. And ego has to be set aside because that's something else that we face, unfortunately, from, you know, white individuals. They'll come in and want to help, but then the ego gets big and then they just want to talk about what they've done in the area as if it wasn't a collaborative effort. And so just being very intentional about not wanting to cause harm, but then just take the education back, take the information back, have these conversations, have these tough conversations, force them because we're at a point where we can't afford to not have our, you know, white allies or counterparts, you know, have these conversations, these things, we need to have basic understanding of these concepts and these terms. So that way, you know, when you guys come and you help and you create your plans, like it's well thought out and it's very intentional to not harm. So, I mean, that's really the biggest help. It's just like, education and that's what we can do like we can educate um individuals we can educate communities as far as what's going on within certain parts of the state and the nation and then you do with it what you will and we hope that you come back with a plan that is going to be effective and productive and is safe for everyone involved
0: great thank you Um, so tell me a little bit about what democracy green is is working on maybe some some wins some good (laughs) news
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, Democracy Green has worked on a lot. Uh, one of our um, moments that, you know, we, we just were blessed with, honestly, was, you know, when Hurricane Florence came through in t- um, 2018, we were able to um, conduct and lead over 250 ward and land rescues because, unfortunately, the National Guard literally left a group of 250 individuals on a street corner with rising waters
0: oh, where was that
1: uh, the National Guard left a group of two hundred mm-hmm. individuals in Eastern North Carolina with no plan nowhere to go so on, on like one street corner literally Wh- where was that at a BP gas station um, this this was um in Eastern North Carolina so around uh, like Craven pit that area um and so yeah so it was uh it was unfortunate um, for that area to be left. in Robinson County as well um, was the main county left kind of to fend for themselves um, with this uh, situation. And so it was extremely unfortunate um, to have to lead those rescues um, in these different areas. So um, yeah, like I said, like Robinson County and that and the surrounding counties of um, that area were the ones that were left on the street corner with rising waters, and then in Pitt and Craven County. They were also um, left, there were individuals left with rising waters in their homes. And we had to uh, assist in conducting getting those individuals out. So there were two separate instances.
0: How did, how did you do that? Did you did you rent boats or like, what, what did that look like?
1: Yeah, so a lot of it were was well one with the situation with the 250 individuals on the street corner. That was an effort coming from um, Shaw Air Force Base um, in South Carolina, we actually literally called on the Air Force Base to conduct the rescue mission, and they were up for it. And they literally went in and got those individuals and got them to safety where they wouldn't be literally standing in rising waters anymore. So just having that relationship with um, that Air Force Base and being able to conduct that um, rescue mission was definitely a blessing within itself. And that was definitely led it, uh, led by um, my co-founder, uh, her name is Leticia Whittington, and she is completely incredible. Um, and she was able to lead that effort to make sure that those individuals were rescued safely and there was an action plan set in place. And then the situation in Craven County with rising waters in folks' homes and us having to do house restorations, with that being where my some of my roots are and having to um, conduct those house restorations and conduct those mutual aid sites for those individuals at the same time. It was just something we had to do. Um, and, you know, it was again extremely unfortunate the situations that both of these groups of people were left in. Um, but it's a part of what happens when we talk about climate disasters. And we when we talk about relief, this is what relief looks like. Um, not just, you know, making sure that folks get supplies. That's definitely a part of relief, but literally just making sure that folks come out of this alive the best way that we can. And so that's definitely been a part of our work It's definitely just trying to get folks back on their feet, whether financially or with resources. Um, And then right now we are um, pivoting focus to um, expanding our GIS technology arm to make sure that we're able to um, work in community and develop action plans based on actual technology, longitude, latitude, and be able to show proof. And show connection as to why these industries are placed in these areas and then what can be done about it and, you know, what is the action steps coming out of that and being able to bring that tool within the community because GIS technology is something that can be taught and it's something that they can keep moving forward and so we have definitely been excited about being able to um, develop that arm for ourselves, but then also be able to educate the community on that technology. And so that's a really big project that we are working on right now, um, is making sure that we get that to the right, um, community. And so there's a plethora of other things when we're talking about national and, um, statewide moratoriums and utility shutoffs and COVID-19 relief and providing PPE for essential workers. Like those are ongoing programs, especially right now during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and so we, we have a little bit of everything going on, but that, um, that, uh, rescue missions, both the one, uh, the 250 individuals and then the one with house restorations definitely, uh, kicked off are um, working to hyper job, and we've just really been running ever since
0: uh, yeah, I heard the other day on the radio that incredibly high percentage of uh, essential workers are people of color, yeah, which which there's a strange irony in that, right like the the pandemic is killing uh, communities of color at a far greater rate, impacting them at a much higher rate, and those are the people who the society is pay, you know is paying minimum wage to keep, our food, keep us in food and keep us uh, in medicine and, and keep us in waste disposal.
1: Right, right. Like we are the most impacted and also the most needed all at the same time. Um, but that's again, nothing new. Um, we have often and always been the backbone of the operations of this country, but we've never been treated as such. And so, unfortunately, because we already have um, pre-existing conditions um, historically within, you know, our our families and our communities, and then when we have a pandemic that's going to impact these same communities because of not only the health disparities but lack of resources to be able to defend themselves against it, not having proper PPE, um, and you just tie all of that together. And then we're the same ones, like you said, that have to show up every day to work, and to make sure that our families are taken care of because we can't um, afford to lose our essential um, worker positions. Folks cannot afford to lose those positions because that's what's actually feeding and caring for their families. It's just unfortunate that we were impacted in two ways with that.
0: Is there anything else that I haven't asked about that you Think people should know about, or maybe like a a first step that people can take to to educate themselves following this conversation?
1: Sure. So, um, definitely one, do the research, um, look up the resources, use the resources, listen to the stories that have already been told time and time again um, by community leaders and elders. Um, Pay attention to where you see industry placed and realize that it's not a coincidence, like really take the time to do the work and do the research. Listen to black and brown leaders as they tell their stories and listen to them as they kind of give you the blueprint and what needs to happen in policy, because I'm a firm advocate that policy is informed by people. And we've lost sight of that in America. We think that we can write things on behalf of folks. And that's not how this works. And so being able to just really be a listening ear. And then if you have resources, share them. Like Make sure that, yeah, make sure that, you know, if you know of um, some uh, funders, if you know of some folks who really want to volunteer or has extra PPE, I mean, the simplest things, just share them, share the information, be willing to work in community um, and be willing to to listen and to learn and not helicopter and try to direct um, a movement that doesn't belong to you.
0: Gotcha. And um, where can people find you and your work on the web?
1: Yes. So folks can find us on social media, uh, Democracy Green on Facebook. Um, You can reach me at um, Jovita Lee and that email is jleebiodiversity at gmail.com. You can also reach um, the organization at democracygreendg at gmail.com. And you will definitely get a response from either our executive director, Sonia Whittington, or um, my partner in crime, Lamicia Whittington, and or myself.
0: Okay. Is, is there a website for Democracy Green?
1: Yes, democracygreen.org. Um, you can reach us, okay. the website as well. And I'll send all of this to you
0: because
1: so you can write it out.
0: Great, great. And I'll share all the, uh, with your permission, I'll share all of the resources you sent me to help me prepare for the interview. I can share those on the show notes as well. Yes, please. All right. Well, Jovita Lee, thank you so much. I mean, I've, there were several times in this conversation where I was like, you know, holding back tears, just, just witnessing what you're holding. And... And the energy that, you know, I'm thinking like God. If that, I, I would just be taking a nap. I'd be like, if I was you, I would just be in fetal position, like <laughs> 24/7. So to just honor your commitment and your energy and um, and the spirit you you bring to this, and I
1: really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's it's definitely hard work. Um, so as long as your heart is in it, it it it's just something that you have to do. And I love my community way too much not to do it. Um, And, you know, honor honestly goes to the elders and to the community Mm. that I work with every day. They are the ones on the front lines and there's no words to thank them enough. And so I'm in this work because of them. And so thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. All
0: right. Well, again, thanks so much for your time today. I I look forward to someday meeting you in person.
1: Absolutely.
0: And best best of luck. Let's uh, let's keep keep pushing.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for having
0: me. All right, well, that is sobering stuff. Um, I'm inspired by Ms. Lee, by her organization, by the communities that uh, have taken the brunt of the environmental disaster that is humans on planet Earth and are, are, are working to fix it. So if you appreciate this episode and you appreciate the the tenor of Plant Yourself and you'd like to help support the mission of the show. Easiest way is to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Give us some stars. Tell other people why you listen, why you like it. That really helps a ton. It helps us reach new people big grow our audience um, and just you know, spreads the word all around. Um, another way, of course, is to become a patron over at PlantYourself.com slash gift. And of course, just telling telling other people you know, forwarding episodes, sharing them on social media, letting people know uh, what we're up to here. And by we, I guess I mean I, because really I'm, <laughs> I'm the person who's doing everything. I say we either, uh, you know, hopefully that uh, they'll have a team to support me one day, or or maybe it's the royal we to pretend that I'm like this big media publishing empire instead of a guy in a shed. All right. So what else is there to talk about? Um, Of course, there's garden news, which is the fences are all up. The gates are all up. And we discovered deer damage the other day because one of the gates I put up fell down. So now I get to put it up again and better. Uh, We're getting lots and lots of little baby eggplant. We got all the grapes we're going to get. And we came, we came across Facebook showed us a picture of our garden six years ago, and there wasn't anything growing, but it sure looked neat and tidy. And I kind of miss that. Thinking about uh, maybe get, grabbing some beds and really sort of starting over uh, the, some of the stuff that's really grown out of control. Um, so the deer did get a whole bunch of kale. Apparently, they don't like mustard greens as much. Uh, so hopefully, uh, we'll put the fence back up, and it will deter them. And we will. Uh, not lose our kale crop uh, in running news I decided to return to uh, zone two training which is for those of you in in the know means it's a certain heart rate zone sort of aerobic effort sort of a like run all day pace and I found discovered that my my um, um, Zone two pace average is about between 10 and 10, 15 minute miles, which is humbling because it's a lot slower than I thought it was. I was going up some hills, but uh, I'm going to you know, wear the heart rate monitor and, and stay there for a while just to get a, a constant effort going. Uh, I did do a, a, a decent almost eight miles uh, on the tobacco trail on Sunday, which felt really good to get out and not just go up and down the street um time for thanks thanks to will Ridenauer for allowing me to use sabali don the dance of peace that most beautiful song is the theme music for the show and thanks of course to all you Plant Yourself Podcast patrons. Oh, I forgot to say, if you, there's a lot of really good resources uh, in the show notes. These are articles and videos that Jovita lee shared with me in preparation, so sort to of help me prepare for our conversation. And they're really interesting. We talk about some of them, and you can find them at plantyourself.com/slash 430. OK, so thanks. Let's say thanks to Kelly Cameron, Wade Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Bell, and David Donahue, Blair Seibert, Dorona of Gio, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, and the last few folks, um, as in Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owens, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra and Danielle Roberts, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherly, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Mr. Cobb, Rachel Baron's, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kinoski, David Bizek, the Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkus, Rhymes of Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, <laughs> hi Janet, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benin, Gillisert, David Donahue, Blair Seiberg, Doron Gio and Car- Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen. Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmaud, and Nolly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R, Susan Laverty, the panda vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, D.N. Norton, Bonnie Lynch, at Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Julian Rodkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, of Gard, Connie Hainlein, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Mirani, Karen Joe Crabtree Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Dan Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Dimits, Summer Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Lenny Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iconelli, Levy, Wallach, Rosamond McAtee, Dan Stephen Steven Leenan, Patty Di Martino, Mike and Donna Cartz, Diane Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunther Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, and Kramer, Lent, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Cesar, Shul Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchik, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Alison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaudem, Edmund Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, and Michael Lushton for your